Welcome everybody to the Sleepy Perform Repeat Podcast. This is your host, David Clancy, and along with my co-host, Connor Gavin, we are here in SoCo Performance, Dublin, Ireland, to bring you a podcast focusing on what it means to be performing at the highest level. What, in essence, is high-performance culture? We're going to share our experience and our backgrounds into what we've acquired over the years. Connor Gavin has extensive experience of working in the AFL with the West Coast Eagles, but also having worked in a high-performance environment with the Irish rugby team. Myself, David Clancy, I'm going to bring my experience and know-how from having worked in London with Isaac Kinetic Medical Group on Hardy Street, but also having experienced high-performance culture working with the Brooklyn Nets and the San Antonio Spurs of the NBA. What we're striving to achieve here is to find out what exactly makes high-level athletes tick and what makes them to perform at the highest level and how they really can get back to play at the highest level of return to play and return to performance after injury. How do all these elements play a role in performance? That's what we're really trying to find out here. So I hope you all enjoy listening to this and can learn. I really hope it sparks an interest because what we're really trying to do here in Ireland is evolve and grow and tap into what really makes high performance culture. Hey guys, so today David and Kiran sat down with Rian Doris, who's the Chief Growth Officer at the Flow Research Collective over in the States. They have a look at what goes on in the brain and the body at times of peak performance. So the boys have a chat with him about how he got to this point in his career following an accident he had in his early teenage years. They have a chat about what his day-to-day with flow research involves, what a flow state actually is and how to reach it. Uh, He gives his thoughts on the 10,000-hour rule as well as habit formation, including the use of reflection. They speak about how athletes are sometimes unable to harness the flow state at critical times and the concept of flow proneness uh, and also whether flow state can be objectively measured and how it fits within the high performance triangle. So it's really good listen for anyone who's got an interest in sports psychology or else how the mind works and uh, its power in relation to being used in high performance environments. So as usual, if you have any questions or comments, you can get in touch with the clinic on SoCo Performance, David is there on D Clancy Physio and Kieran is there on Kieran Dunn PT, all on Instagram. Uh, for Rean, he's there as well on all one word, Rean Sweetman Doris. And then if you're interested in the, the Flow Research Collective themselves, uh, their website is zero to dangerous.com. So enjoy. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. We're joined on the line by Rean Doris and I'll throw you over to David to introduce Firstly, thanks very much for coming on today, Rian. Rian is the Chief Growth Officer at the Flow Research Collective. He has an MSc in Neuroscience from King's College London and Philosophy from Trinity College Dublin. And also he's part of the Neuro Leadership Institute. He's a coach in that. So we're very much looking forward to having Rian on today with his diverse, very interesting background, talking to us all about what the state of flow means and how that can be reference to high performance culture and sport and business i've come across rian personally having read a book recently and tapped into where flow comes from from kind of adventure and extreme sports and how that can be kind of extrapolated into sport and business so rian thanks very much for coming on the line today how is everything your end yeah all is good here thanks for having me lads appreciate it big time perfect so tell us a little bit about how you've come to the point where you are today, Rian, that you are now considered, I suppose, a world-leading expert in this field. Sure, yeah. So, um, kind of going back, I suppose, to about 
10 years ago, I was 13, had a really bad head injury, um, went down a water slide, funnily enough, head first, tried to do a somersault off the bottom of the slide, semi-rotated, hit the top of my head off the concrete bottom of the pool, uh, and ended up with a sort of post-head injury malaise, um, which consisted of, you know, lots of different um not great symptoms from you know chronic fatigue to amnesia to blurred vision which actually lasted all the way from 13 to about 19 so pretty much my whole teen years wasn't able to play sport and you know was initially a huge sort of rugby rugby player massively into it surfed a lot used to go to the gym a lot so kind of was stripped had all those sort of hobbies stripped away um, and then in the midst of that period at about 15 began reading about peak performance, uh, spirituality, even some sort of self-help, Tony Robbins type stuff, uh, began to kind of develop a growth mindset, became increasingly fascinated with this whole space, um, and then continued to kind of foster that curiosity and interest into college. Um, and then, yeah, over a probably a five to six year period of exposing myself to as much stuff as possible within the space kind of um distilled exactly you know where i wanted to go within it uh which led me to stephen cotler um who is uh an expert in peak performance and flow essentially and um yeah so that was kind of the journey going from sort of that initial adversity into uh you know finding this whole world um and having it you know, be of huge assistance in the midst of that adversity, and then yeah, cultivating a passion for it. Um, that was kind of the. I suppose look, we'll have, to, we'll have to quote a little bit of philosophy here. Stoic, you know, it, it is the power of the mind to be unconquerable, right? I've, I've What's read, that? It's the power of the mind to be unconquerable. I read that recently, and yeah, that's a good one. I like what, that. You've obviously shown tremendous resiliency, and mental strength, mindset, determination to come through. It's a long time of not being able to do a lot of things you wanted to be doing and had that, like you said, just kind of cut away from your life, but managed to really, I suppose, excuse the pun considering how it started, but but land on your feet. And now you're obviously really bringing what you've learned and acquired through all this to a lot of different people. So we'd like to acknowledge you for that. And um, that's really great. Tell us about kind of what you're doing day to day and what this this new venture sort of entails for the listeners. Sure, yeah. So, I'll give you kind of the, the full breakdown of, you know, exactly what we do and kind of the different aspects of the company. Yeah, and, te- and tell us where you kind of fit in and what, what, what you're specifically interested in. Sure, yeah. So, well, for a little bit of background, I've been working with Stephen for three years now. Uh, I actually initially came in on the research side. We developed a study on flow and creativity together um, with UCLA, and then I sort of expanded my portfolio work with him worked with him at his old organization and then have started this new organization, you know, more kind of in partnership with him. So the Flow Research Collective, we always describe it, you know, in simplest terms as a research and training organization. Um, And our mission is to essentially understand the science behind ultimate human performance. And that's the research side. That's, you know, what we're doing with our research. Um, And then on the training side, the mission is to use what we learn through our research Um, and leverage the science to train up individuals and organizations in peak performance. Um, And our focus is on flow state, which we can get into a little bit more later on. 
so yeah, that's essentially what we do research and training organization, and we uh, yeah we offer kind of evidence based neuroscience backed um, training around peak performance and flow for you know executives, entrepreneurs, athletes, etc. And then we also do it yeah, in an organizational capacity as well. I'd like you to just go back a little bit to that creativity in UCLA you were doing because I I, I attended a coincidentally it was called a curiosity and creativity conference this week Wednesday in Dublin and oh, nice. it was really interesting and we had we had a, a woman from Winnipeg a, Iranian background and she was talking an awful lot about how empathy and that sort of skill set in essence helps a lot with enhancing creativity and, and complex problem solving communication in essence all the building blocks for what people are looking for when they're hiring new staff in organizations such as formula one nasa or or in the sports medicine kind of community just tell us a little bit about that initiative and that study you did in relation to creativity it's something i'm particularly interested in at the moment yeah sure so there's Stephen, going back quite a while, has had a kind of hypothesis um, that is, you know, partly sort of theoretical and partly empirically validated that flow enhances creativity. Um, and there's not much research done on it. There's kind of, you know, good reasons to believe that there would be, you know, a positive relationship between flow and creativity. But we wanted to kind of dig in and actually. Um, you know, try and firm up the data a little bit there. So what we did was we had a kind of a priming um, passage that um, our, our participants, our study participants would take, and they would kind of retroactively recall and examine a previous flow state they've had, and then they would answer questions from an academically validated measure of creativity um, around their level of you know perceived creativity from that period of flow so it was a pretty pretty sort of crude study design but it, it was helpful in terms of getting some kind of you know exploratory initial data there which is going to allow us to kind of dig in and get a little bit more under the hood um over the long term which is what we're planning on doing we're going to that's going to be you know a continued kind of research area for us for sure I'd like you just to tell everyone, I know you had said it there in passing, you're going to bring it in later on, but for the listeners, I read a book and it said how flow and research and people have experienced it from extreme adventure sports when someone's having to jump over the Great Wall of China on a skateboard or when someone's having to ride a wave in Mavericks or somewhere like that. And those sort of athletes like Way, Laird Hamilton have experienced that bit of flow. How does someone like Kiran or myself, or my sister, or my dad, maybe relate and try to understand how to tap into flow and what exactly that means? Sure, so I'll kind of back into that question a little bit, maybe I think it'd be helpful to kind of define it first, yeah, um, and then and then I'll, I'll get into, you know, how we can actually get into that state, but firstly, you know, what even is it, what even is flow, because it sounds kind of a little bit esoteric, and we actually kind of almost amusingly have a little trouble with the word you know it can be a little bit like energy or manifestation and it gets used in lots of different contexts but when we say flow we're actually using it um in the same way that the researchers primarily within positive psychology use it so it's actually a technical term that's used within academia um and 
it is defined by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who's the guy who coined the term. He's a Hungarian researcher and psychologist as an optimal state of consciousness, a state where you feel your best and you perform your best. And more specifically, it refers to those moments of rapt attention and total absorption where you're so focused on the task at hand that everything else kind of disappears, action and awareness merge, your sense of self, so that sort of inner critic, that you know, inner dialogue that you often have with yourself vanishes. It actually goes offline. Your sense of time distorts or dilates, so it either speeds up, which is often what happens when you get you know, into sort of a more cognitive flow state, or it slows down, which is often what happens in kind of more physical or embodied flow states. And throughout your time in this state, all aspects of performance, mental and physical, massively increase and go through the roof. So that's what it actually is. And everyone's experienced this state, you know, at different times. And there's lots of synonyms for the state. So, you know, a lot of people will refer to it as being in the zone. That's mm -hmm. probably one of the most common ways that people will describe it. Sometimes people will say that they've been in stage or they've gotten in the groove or they've, you know, gotten into it when they're talking about work. And they are more or less referring to this same state of consciousness. Um, so that's what the state actually is. And then in terms of being able to sort of get into the state, there are a number of uh, preconditions or, or triggers, so they're called flow triggers, that you need to have present in order to be able to actually access the state. And that's a big part of what we study is these different triggers for flow. And in our training, we kind of teach people how to build their work and their lives around these flow triggers so they can maximize their ability to get into that state kind of with consistency. Perfect. So I, I noticed one of the triggers that was mentioned was the challenge ratio. Um, if you could elaborate on that, I think it's it shows echoes in the computer and gaming industry about how it challenges you to a level, but allows you to achieve at the same time. Could you elaborate on that a bit? Sure. Yeah. So that that's one of Csikszentmihalyi's kind of original triggers. Was th three of the big ones that you'll hear a lot are the one you just mentioned: so challenge, skills, balance, immediate feedback, and clear goals. But the challenge, skills, balance is essentially just the idea that flow exists in the sweet spot between boredom and anxiety. So, you know, boredom occurs when the challenge level is too low and your skill level is essentially too high. And anxiety occurs when the challenge level is too high for your skill set. Um, and then you get, so, you know, if, if you're doing a task and it's just too difficult or too challenging or you're playing a video game and it's too difficult or too challenging, you're going to be kind of kicked into a state of anxiety. Um, and vice versa is also the case. You know, if it's just mundane and too easy, it's just boring. So flow, it appears, exists right in the sweet spot between boredom and anxiety. When the challenge is just perfectly uh, kind of resting above your skill set. So you're sort of at that perfect level of stimulation um, between boredom and anxiety. And that is, a, that is a massive trigger for flow. And people, I mean, you can often kind of, like for the listeners, you can think back in your own life to periods where this has been the case. You know, if you're doing an activity and it's just massively overwhelming and you're tight on time and you don't really you know, have the resources you need to be able to do it, it's just overwhelming, you're anxious, it's uncomfortable. And obviously, you know, if you're just punching data into an Excel spreadsheet or something like that as well, it's also too mundane. But 
you know, if you get the activity right and you kind of anchor it towards your skill set and have it calibrated correctly to your skill set, it uh, it can you know trigger a flow state. And uh, I think even just upon reflection in one's own life, you can sort of identify examples of that pretty easily as well. Yeah, I think, and it sort of echoes as well as that is the quality of training. So obviously the 10,000 hours rule and stuff like that can be applicable to someone if it's not quality training and they're not challenging at a level it's not it's not necessarily a thing and just it's starting to debate about the 10,000 hour rule which we won't get into too much right now um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's that interesting could be another podcast that, I mean, yeah <laughs> yeah well I mean so uh, yeah there was um, I, think, I believe it was Ericsson uh, who came up with that uh, that huge. rule and then Malcolm Gladwell popularised it yeah um, and yeah, I mean, we go back and forth a little bit on it. In some respects, it first it's, it's kind of an arbitrary number, but the idea that you do need a lot of deliberate practice, which is kind of what it's based off of, we agree with, um, and it does kind of like sync with our methodology and philosophy. Um, but then, you know, we kind of argue that deliberate practice is massively enhanced if you're able to get into flow while doing it because performance is enhanced, learning is enhanced, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, yeah so it's an interesting one. You've mentioned it there, reflection as well. An author that looked at the 10,000 hour rules and sort of dismissed it and also wrote other books is Matthew Said, sorry. And he's looked at black box thinking as well, which is all about the avian Asian industry and how they reflect back on mistakes or near mistakes and how they improve and refine their services. And you mentioned reflection. Is that something that you would integrate into your daily tasks or your daily life, like reflection on your performance in the week, performance in the day, performance in the hour? Is that something that people should be looking to do to get a better sense of self? Um, yeah. I mean, we we recommend, you know, a number of sort of basic, simple, you know, habits that are kind of always just going to result in net positive outcomes. Um a lot of which have kind of come out of positive psychology, like gratitude, mindfulness, you know, obviously exercise, eating well, et cetera, et cetera. And reflection of some kind, some kind of daily reflection practice, I think definitely falls into that, you know, like in a very simplistic sense, it's obviously helpful to reflect on a day and on a week and on a month to be able to kind of identify, you know, common denominators, things that are serving you, things that aren't serving you, behavior patterns, et cetera, et cetera. And it can be, you know, sort of a helpful process for externalizing um behaviors or thoughts or you know patterns or mindsets that you are generally a little bit up close or too up close to day to day to be able to kind of you know fully examine and and assess whether or not they're actually useful so yeah i think reflection just in general is is always a good thing really i'd I'd like to touch on a couple of sporting analogies and just get your kind of practical advice as to Say you're on an F1 grid, or actually the British Open's on this week, and let's talk about you're on the first tee, okay, and you're about to pick out your driver, and you're, you're ready, and you're prepared, and you've visualized, and you've worked on your breathing, and the mantra, and there's pressure there. You're, you're trying to go into that automatic sort of state. How, how come these athletes, you know, how come these guys like Rory McIlroy can't somehow tap into that flow state and just switch the rest out and just let all that all those hours of deliberate practice and repetition and consistency 
just work for them at that point in time? Where, how can we harness that ability to tap into flow state at those critical moments? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's kind of the ultimate question as well. And you know, that's why we have to ask you. To, <laughs> <laughs> well, we're still trying to figure it out. I mean, one concept that I'm a big fan of is the idea of flow proneness, which is essentially just the idea of being able to kind of increase your baseline ability to get into that state with ease, um, or you know, during the moments when you need it most, and. At least anecdotally, the way that you can kind of increase flow proneness is a lot of sort of more systemic practices and habits that are, you know, kind of, again, sort of pretty obviously going to have a positive impact in terms of being able to get into that state. So things like sleep and regulating your nervous system, managing stress, um, et cetera, et cetera. So there's kind of the, you know, the sort of more broad, obvious, indirect approaches to sort of increasing flow proneness that are helpful. Uh, And then another thing I think is very helpful is um, what Stephen calls cognitive literacy. Mm -hmm. And cognitive literacy is essentially sort of cultivating or developing the uh, awareness of what that state feels like in any given moment. And over time, you can begin to kind of, you know, in real time, know sort of semi-intuitively um, where your kind of state of consciousness is and where your actual you know focus is and what you need to do in the moment to be able to kind of shift your state to the point that you know you want it to be at to be able to perform at your best. And there's a number of ways you can increase cognitive literacy. I mean, one is literally just becoming aware of what flow is from a scientific standpoint and we hear a lot of people tell us you know after watching Stephen's talks and reading about flow and getting a sense for the science behind it that having kind of an objective scientifically backed framework through which they can kind of analyze and decipher and understand their subjective experience alone makes a big difference in terms of being able to increase cognitive literacy and help them get into that state. You know, when you when you know that there is a thing called flow that is, again, sort of academically validated and research-backed, you have a thing to aim for and your sort of subjective experience um, becomes a little more easy to navigate because you've got these kind of frameworks and models through which you can sort of understand it. So that alone can be helpful. But then in terms of um, getting into it more detail, I mean, there's lots of different things you can do. And again, it, it, unfortunately, it's that frustrating answer. It, it depends. It depends on the individual. It's all end to one. And it also it depends on the situation, depends on the sport, et cetera, et cetera. But there are two kind of broad things, I would say. I suppose uh, like- is increasing flow proneness and increasing cognitive literacy. I suppose for us, like as physios, sports medicine practitioners, we talk a lot about acute and chronic workloads in relation to tendon pathology and injury of that nature. In essence, I suppose for flow, if you could kind of build up an accumulation of those acute spikes of flow when you have a much more acute awareness of, I was in flow on a Monday, Monday and geez, I was kind of there, I felt it the same again today. Well, you're going to have that chronic awareness of where it is so that when that first T moment comes up, you've been, I've practiced four times and I was actually tapping into this moment that I need to be in right now. That's kind of an analogy I could see as to how you should be. Yeah. 
Exactly, exactly. The way I mean, the way we say it very simply is: the more flow you get, the more flow you get. You know, and yeah, so yeah, I like that. Stephen, one of the things Stephen teaches is having kind of primary and secondary flow activities that you actually install in your life uh, proactively that aren't necessarily related to. Uh, the place or the activities or areas where you most need to get into flow. So, for example, um, you know, Stephen's a writer. I'll choose him as an example. Stephen's a writer, you know, and that's kind of the activity that's sort of at the epicenter of his career, and that's where he needs to be able to get into this state of hyper-focus or flow most consistently is during his writing because it's going to result in him producing his best work, and, you know, it's what he needs to do primarily. It's the highest priority. But... In order to be able to increase his ability to get into that state while writing, he deploys a number of different flow um, producing activities in and around his life, like skiing. So he skis, I think, like about a month a year, so 30 plus days a year. Stephen skis, he mountain bikes a ton, he hikes, he does lots of other things to kind of make sure that he's consistently sort of tuning his state of consciousness and getting into that state uh, so that when it comes to writing and doing the thing that he actually you know most needs to be in that state for he's kind of closer to it already and he's got that like increased familiarity with it from having been in that state with you know those other activities so that's that's huge it's just like trying to get there as much as possible because it it uh, it applies across the board and a good example of this in the workplace which Stephen talks about quite a lot as well, is with Patagonia. So um, Patagonia have their offices fairly near me here. Um, I'm in Venice Beach. They're up in Ventura in California. And they have um, a surfing policy for their employees. So their employees essentially are allowed at any point throughout the day, pick up um, and run into the waves and go surfing. Um, And that's because they know that it's going to increase their employees' ability to get in the flow when they're actually working. Um, and they also know that, you know, when their employees are flow, their output is much, much higher. And their output is obviously directly tied to the bottom line. Um, so it makes sense to be able to allow their employees the freedom to be able to go and do those kind of flow producing activities because it's going to bring it back into the office, which is going to improve performance, which is going to improve bottom line, et cetera, et cetera. So, so yeah, I think the physio analogy is, is a good one, in other words. I, I like... Here's a, a tough question, another tough one, and then we're going back to Kiran. A lot of these experiences are somewhat subjective. I mean, I've played basketball at a high level, and I would say there's times when I can relate, having been in that moment when every shot was dropping. I was making everything, okay? But if I'm trying to sell this to a CEO or a general manager of a team, a lot of the time they say, well, David, tell me about outcome measures and how we can objectify this because... You're selling me an experience, but how can my Fitbit show me that I've tapped into flow because my heart rate parameter was here, etc.? What's your opinion on how this could be kind of more objectified or outcome driven? It's a great question. It's a great question. So there's a lot of well, there's a number of different ways to answer it. One is to say that you know the psychology. So this 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 the like flow as a term in the first place. And all of this research has come out of psychology. So we're actually much more advanced within psychology versus neuroscience or, you know, the neurophysiology of flow. The psychology is more dialed in. It's, it's being pushed further along just because there's been more research done there. So that's the first thing. And that's, that's partly why we have less, 
you know, sort of concrete, tangible, numerical, physiological measures of flow. It's just time and focus within, you know, the areas of academia where this has been looked at. Um, but in terms of research, um, our main long-term research objective is what we kind of phrase as decoding the neurophysiology of flow. And that essentially means, in simple terms, understanding what is actually going on in the brain and in the body when people are in that state. So not, not, not understanding what it feels like to be in that state, because again, psychology's done a great job of that, and we're pretty clear on what it feels like to be in that state. Um, but what is actually going on in the body from an objective scientific perspective when people are in that state. So that's our kind of main long-term research initiative um, and all our sort of, you know, uh, other research initiatives are kind of feeding into that overarching goal. And so, you know, we want to be able to, over time, say that, you know, when your heart rate variability is X, it means you're probably in flow. When your heart period is X, it means you're probably in flow. When your core body temperature is X, it means you're in flow. When mm. your brainwave state is X, it means you're in flow, et cetera, et cetera, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. So that is kind of, that's the sort of like, you know, goal that we're reaching for in terms of the research. But you're right. I mean, you're 100% right that it is primarily a, you know, it's a, it's a state that has come out of psychology and most of the research is, you know, qualitative um, and, you know, subjective experience-based rather than, you know, objective and kind of physiology-based. That's very good, yeah. So I'd like to bring it back to something that we ask a lot of people here on the podcast about high-performance culture. And one thing that's cropped up a bit is the high-performance triangle that Stephen has mentioned before, and I know it's mentioned the, the Flow Research Collective and I'd just like you to elaborate a bit on that, if possible. Sure. Yeah. So you got, do you mean the idea of motivation, creativity and learning? Exactly the one, yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, so, well, in, in the context of, of, of developing a high-performance culture or... Just in terms of how does the flow state impact on the high-performance triangle? Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. So... So firstly, in terms of motivation, one of the characteristics, I'll kind of, I'll break down each aspect of the high performance triangle with respect to flow. Um, So yeah, firstly, in terms of motivation, flow is autotelic, which is kind of a fancy way of saying um, that it is worthwhile in and of itself. You know, it, it, it doesn't have to be a means to an end. It feels good and you want it just for what it is in and of itself. So it's not necessarily a means to an end. And autotelic motivation is extremely powerful. It's it's a form of intrinsic motivation. And, you know, that's why you see examples where, you know, for, let's say, surfers or rock climbers or whatever will, you know, totally effortlessly and voluntarily wake up at 4.30 in the morning and drive you know, four hours across the country to catch the perfect wave or, you know, scale the perfect cliff or whatever the case may be because they're chasing that state um, which is worthwhile in and of itself which is intrinsically motivating. And so if you can cultivate that state within your workday and you can spend, you know, a large proportion of your workday in that state, then you're actually able to kind of harness that same 
intrinsic motivation and you just you, this kind of desire emerges where you just want to get back into that zone because it feels so damn good to be there not necessarily because you want to produce something off the back of it but just because it literally feels good in and of itself and um, so you know the more time you spend in flow the more autotelic motivation occurs um, and you know the easier it is to be able to kind of sit down and do the thing that you used to have to sort of whip yourself um, or force yourself into doing. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and then in terms of learning, uh, so, well, learning and learning creativity are pretty complex. I'll give you a quick kind of breakdown on learning. One helpful way to think about learning um, and learning and flow is that um, essentially the more neurochemicals that are in your system at a given time when you confront new information, the more the brain sees that information as salient or important or necessary to remember. So you can almost think of it as neurochemicals sort of tagging uh, information. And the more neurochemicals are in your system at a given time, the more heavily that information gets tagged and the higher retention and recall is going to be off the back of that. And so when you're in flow, obviously you're getting this kind of neurochemical cascade of serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, endorphins, anandamide, norepinephrine. And so retention, at least we kind of hypothesize, increases. And I should mention as well that, you know, the neurochemistry of flow is still very much so TBD as far as the research. Um, but that's sort of, you know, the working hypothesis. Um, and, then, and then creativity, we touched on a little bit already. But, uh, yeah, there's a number of reasons, again, uh, to believe that creativity increases when in flow and i'll give kind of one simple example or reason and we're going to be publishing our white paper on this actually which i'll send you guys down the line once it comes out but one one very simple um example again which i think listeners will be able to sort of you know think back to and relate to their own experience is that you get that sense of selflessness when you're in flow, which I was mentioning earlier. So that kind of inner dialogue, the inner critic, the kind of nagging, defeatist voice in your head goes offline. So you actually don't judge your actions as heavily because that that inner critic, that voice has been kind of turned down, which allows creativity to kind of spiral um, and it allows you to foster it more because you're less self-critical. You're not, you know, sort of judging all your moves in your mind as you're doing them. You're able to kind of you know, free flow and experiments a little bit more without that sort of inner judgment constraining your creativity. Um, and that's, we refer to that as transient hyperfrontality and, and it's um, essentially a part of the prefrontal cortex that's kind of, you know, going offline that causes that decrease in uh, your inner critic or, or kind of inner dialogue. Yeah, it's definitely exciting space anyway in terms of the objective markers and trying to get something to identify so it's really interesting stuff at the moment. Um, yeah, man, it is. I mean, it'll be great to it'll be great to get to a point where you know it's just a, a really sort of robust thing. We actually have these like concrete neurophysiological measures for the state, rather than just having to kind of you know rely on people's descriptions of what it feels like to be out. Absolutely, yeah. I have one more question for you, and then I'll pass you back over to David. Um, when you think of the flow state, can you name an athlete that you take, for example, or a, a, an executive or someone that you think they were able to access the flow state? They could do it. They had their training done. They could access their triggers. And someone that you can think of an example that epitomized the ability to get into the flow state. 
That's a great question, man. Actually, I'm, I've literally never thought of that before, believe it or not. Because <laughs> um, we usually we usually sort of think of individuals in terms of you know their accomplishments or their output, uh, rather than actually just straight up their ability to get into flow. So it's a great question. In all honesty, I'm not sure if I have anyone in mind who I can think of off the back. I, I know that uh, I've met people, and Stephen has people a lot who kind of come up to him saying, you know, I'm in flow all the damn time, 24-7 for months. you got to study me. you got to study me. And usually in that case, it's actually some kind of dopamine dysregulation and some kind of mania <laughs> that's actually going on. Not a good thing to be in that state all the time at all. Um, but I've met people as well. I mean, I had dinner, funnily enough, with a uh, pretty high-powered lawyer here in L.A. Uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, I was telling her about the work we do, and she was like glued in and eyes lighting up and telling me that she, when she's doing case law, uh, freshly coming up to you know the end of a trial or whatever, she would sit down and literally literally work 20 to 24 hours straight with literally no stop whatsoever and it was getting to the point where she was having serious health issues with massive like severe dehydration and bladder issues because she was literally so sucked in and absorbed in her work that she wasn't going to the bathroom and it was literally causing her like you know damage in that in that front um so that's kind of an extreme example and again that I don't necessarily think you want to aspire to that. Again, I would imagine there's some kind of dopamine dysregulation or sort of you know, mania that is causing those kind of extreme examples. Um, but yeah, in terms of in terms of an individual, I'm not sure. But I mean, well, well we could both get a flow state because we haven't gone to the toilet now for like thirty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you must be in it then. <laughs> the ultimate trigger. A new trigger, yeah. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, man, that's an interesting question. I'll have to, I'll have to think, but I don't have anyone in my own mind, at least, that I, you know, I, I, obviously, like, we reference a lot of people in terms of, you know, examples of extreme uh, or of, you know, elite performance, but not necessarily straight up in terms of, you know, amount of time spent in flow. So I'll have to, I'll have to think about I'll it follow more. you up on that one. Yeah, do indeed. We're, we're getting towards the end, but I'd like to ask you a couple of quick fire, five or six quick fire questions. Just whatever comes into your head, okay? Sure, yeah. The two of us are um, heading off for the weekend now shortly. Give us give us a life lesson. You've been through a lot. Give us both a life lesson. Um, God. So I'll give you, I'll give you, uh, I won't give you a life lesson, but, <laughs> but I'll give you a quick uh a quick description of one of the one of the principles at the uh, at the Flow Research Collective that we talk about a lot, okay. uh, which actually is biology versus personality. Uh, so Stephen talks about this a lot. So essentially, it's the idea that you know, unfortunately, a lot of people in this space, um, and we've definitely been guilty of it as well, give other people advice based upon their own personal experience, but personal experience is kind of end to one what works for me won't necessarily work for you or work for anyone else because of you know nature nurture genetics epigenetics environment etc etc you know some people have crazy risk tolerances some people have ridiculous perseverance some people have chronic anxiety and so things that are going to work for them are not necessarily going to work for you so rather than providing advice off the back of you know, personality, to use personality as kind of a placeholder term for, you know, end-to-one, 
what's worked for me works for you. We try and give advice off the back of biology because we believe biology scales and biology isn't end to one. Biology is kind of universal and unanimous. Um, and so that's what we attempt to do in our training is actually kind of like dip below the level of personality down into the level of mechanism and understand what is actually going on more so on a biological level. And again, this relates, by the way, to, you know, looking at flow as kind of a psychological subjective state versus a physiological um you know, set of metrics, but we try and give advice based on the back of biology because we believe biology scales and when it's biology, what works for me absolutely will work for you. So rather than a life lesson, I'll, I'll give you that, uh, that because if I, if I gave you a life lesson, it'd be me kind of trying to scale personality, which we, which we don't necessarily think works. That's a good answer. Okay. We, Tony Robbins in his Power Hour. Give us, you're a man of philosophy, so give myself and Kieran a motto from your background from philosophy so we can maybe think about something when we're tapping into that hour in the day. Give us one of your mottos. Um, one of my mottos, but well, one of them, well, I think first of all, just relating to what we were talking about at the start, I think adversity can be a massive gift um, if you sort of leverage it correctly. Um but, uh, well, yeah, no, a motto that I actually think of more and that I find kind of like tangibly helpful and useful uh, comes off the back of Stoic philosophy. So I'm a huge, huge fan of Stoic philosophy. Um, and there's two different sort of quotes that I love and very often think of and find them actually like tangibly beneficial to, to kind of remind myself of, one of which is the obstacle is the way. Um, and the other of which is what obstructs the path becomes the path. Um, so, you know, it's just the kind of essentially the idea of being sort of radically accepting of whatever it is that shows up um, and, you know, understanding and accepting that that is just the way forward and that, you know, what you want to do is not try and fight that. You want to kind of aggressively work around it via action taking, etc. I, th- I think the two of us were hoping you'd say sleepy, perform, repeat, but <laughs> we're, we're, ha- we're happy with the story. <laughs> um, tell us your favorite. Tell us your favorite book that you've read. Jeez, tough question, man. Let me think. Uh, done well so far. I'll give you a couple. I'll give you a couple. So one of the ones we recommend a lot, which I love as well, is "Behave" by Robert Sapolsky phenomenal kind of foundational understanding of, of okay. neuroscience. Another one is The Organized Mind by Daniel Levitin. Another one is Incognito by David Eagleman, who's another amazing neuroscientist. Uh, another one is The User Illusion. It's a great book on consciousness. Uh, actually blanking on the name of the author for that one. Okay. Um, and let me think, as of late, as of late, I've been reading a lot of business books, a lot of amazing business books. Um, but yeah, those those ones are all pretty dense. You could, you know, kind of spend months and months reading and rereading those those ones I just mentioned. So nice light reading, but good. Um, here's Daniel Coyle, one of my favorite authors, who wrote the Culture Code and the Talent Code. I was chatting to him actually. Oh yeah, yeah, I love that book. Actually. I was chatting yeah, to him today actually, and he um, he came up with a, a great a great question. I want to ask you if a crystal ball could tell you the truth about yourself, Rian, or your life, or your future, or anything like that, what would you want the crystal ball to tell you? If it could tell me the truth about the future? 
it could tell you it could tell you whatever it's a crystal ball so it can tell you whatever you want it could it can tell you whatever you want to know about anything but it can tell you one thing I think, uh, whether or not bitcoin is going to reach 100k in the next year <laughs> good answer <laughs> that's a great i know i think i think um well i don't know I, I think it all for me at least personally comes down to sort of maxing out or reaching my potential, whatever that means. Um, so in terms of uh, being able to relax into that a little bit, it'd be nice to hear that that is going to happen over the you know next however amount of decades. And the last one of the quick fire, the most serious and difficult one of all. Um, where would you rather be tomorrow, Venice Beach or Dublin? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to insult the hometown, <laughs> um, so I might stay silent on that one. But... Uh, it's pretty damn sunny and nice here, I've got to say. And they've got poke bowls and fresh fruit outside the office and badass waves 20 metres away from me. So, uh, yeah, I think I think for now, Venice is winning. But I'm looking forward to getting back to Dublin for a little bit soon. So you're sitting on the fence then? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's brilliant. Rian, we've heard an awful lot since we started this podcast about how culture very much creates a competitive adv- advantage in the workplace and in sport. But I think it's fair to say we're both going to have to say flow seems to create a competitive advantage. You're obviously at the forefront of it from a science perspective. You are unearthing all the gems as to how people can tap into it. So just keep decoding peak performance because like in that movie Limitless with Bradley Cooper and he took his little pill. And he probably tapped into that flow state and he was the man. We'd like to figure out how we can all get there a little bit more. And, and you're the man that's going to help answer those questions. So thanks very much for coming on today. Thanks, lads. Appreciate it. Yeah, it was good fun. Nice to be able to chat to uh, a couple of lads from the hometown as well. Because, uh, yeah, it's shocking, actually. Very, very rarely come across um, Irish people, believe it or not, uh, at all the conferences and events and things like that that we do. Don't meet many Irish. So, yeah, it's a pleasure. Well, we're going to go off now and have our poke bowl out in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> so wish us luck. Nice. Yeah. Cheers to that. Take care. Cheers, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Rain. Appreciate it. All the best. <laughs>